Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May 15th, 2023. We're back to the Supreme Court today, appropriately for a Monday morning, perhaps. We've done a number of shows on the Supreme Court recently. Um, one last year with Linda Greenhouse, the iconic New York Times uh, Supreme Court correspondent. She had a new book out, Justice on the Brink. They seem to have gone over the brink now. Last year, we also did a show with Dahlia Lithwick, a prominent blogger and the legal correspondent of Slate. She has a new book out, Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. It's all about America being on the edge, this idea of battling to save America, or at least uh, Dahlia Lithwick's version of America. And then a couple of weeks ago, we did a show with the CNN correspondent, uh, Supreme Court correspondent, Jonah Biskupich who has a new book out, uh, Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. And in some ways, um, today's conversation and book is very much a follow-up from Biscovich. Uh, Stephen Vladek has a new book out this week called The Shadow Docket, which is a book, at least according to Vladek, of how the Supreme Court is using stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic. More uh, rather dire views of the Supreme Court and its undermining of the American Republic and democracy. And Stephen is joining us. Stephen, where are you in, in Texas? Uh, at the moment, I'm in New York, of all places. Uh, well, the book is launching uh, this week, so I'm sure you're on publicity tour. Uh, Stephen, these book titles sound very dramatic. Uh, and of course, uh, I often have authors who will deflect my observations about the drama of their, uh, of their titles or subtitles, basically blaming it on their publisher. Um, is the American Republic really being undermined by what you call the shadow docket and this broader threat of an unrepresentative out-of-touch Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I'll, I'll take responsibility for this one. I think the answer is yes. And and what the book endeavors to show, um, especially to folks who maybe don't spend as much time following the Supreme Court that carefully and reading every single piece of paper that comes out of it, is that the court is using these unsigned, unexplained orders, first, in ways it never has before, but second, in contexts in which it really is, I think, pulling at. Um, some of the basic precepts of our democratic system, just to take one super, I think, on point example in the election context, you know, there were a pair of unsigned, unexplained orders that the court handed down last year in redistricting cases out of Alabama and Louisiana that Andrew directly affected which party controlled as many as three seats in the House of Representatives indirectly, according to a New York Times study, somewhere between seven and 10 seats right there is control of the House of Representatives. And so I think when you have a court, the power of which comes from its ability and its tradition of handing down decisions with principled justifications, and all of a sudden we see all of these rulings that are on topics from abortion to asylum, to religion, to COVID, where the court is issuing rulings with massive impact, 
but with no explanation. I do think that is a serious problem and one that has ominous implications for the state of our system. For the Republic. Why is this the case, Stephen? Um, There have always been conservatives on the court. Are there particular individuals, of course, um, lots of controversy these days about Clarence Thomas and his uh, undisclosed gifts, lots of ethical questions um, surrounding Thomas. Has ha, have the conserv- Is this a conservative problem or is this a problem with the Supreme Court itself? Could, could conceivably, if the liberals had a majority, could they be doing the same thing? I think it's entirely possible. And I actually think this is one of the important points that I try to convince readers of in the book. It's easy, I think, for us to look at the current court and assume that everything that some people think is wrong with it and others think is great about it is traceable to the current ideological composition of the bench. And Andrew, I think that misses some much bigger, much more significant institutional problems and pathologies that could be just as present with a liberal majority as a conservative one where the problem is not who the justices are. The problem is the extent to which there's no one meaningfully checking them and there's no accountability, whether it's for claimed ethical violations by Justice Thomas, whether it's for uses and abuses of the docket in ways we've never seen. So I think this is what's a little weird about the book is that it's not trying to say progressives good, conservatives bad. It's trying to say Supreme Court as an institution, unhealthy. Um, and we should try to understand how we got here and what we can do to try to get out of it. Yeah, it's a really interesting point um, because all too often these these kinds of books and conversations degenerate, in my view, into just bashing conservatives and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, of course, Stephen, and, and, and this is what you teach at the University of Texas. You're a, you're a law professor. That's your day job. You are the Charles Allen Wright chair in federal court. So you know this well a million times better than I do. But my understanding of the Supreme Court is it was the check. It was assumed that there wouldn't need to be a check on it because it would be made up of nine justices who would be appointed for life. None of these were supposedly political decisions. And this represented the most, um, I guess, uncorruptible, ethical, moral, legal foundations of the American Republic. Is that fair or or has the Supreme Court always in its own way had uh, an ideological agenda which stealthily it's pursued? So I think it's fair, Andrew. I think it's incomplete. Um, which is that, yes, having an unelected independent judiciary was one of the truly indispensable contributions of the Constitution, was a decisive break from the practice in pre-revolutionary England. But the judiciary was not meant to be unchecked and independent. It was meant to be part of this back and forth conversation. So let's just chat briefly about a couple of the things Congress used to do to supervise the court. Um, There was one term in the early 1800s where Congress said, hey, justices, we're mad at you. You're not even going to sit this year. We're not going to let you meet. Um, There were cases in the 1800s that Congress didn't want the court to decide. It just took away the court's jurisdiction to decide them. Congress controls and used to use its control over the justices' budget um, to exert influence, to express displeasure, as, for example, Congress did as late as 1964, when it refused to give the Supreme Court the same pay raise that all the other federal judges were getting. And I I think what's lurking behind all of this is that Congress has a number of levers 
not that it can destroy the court with, but that it can pull on as a way of just sort of nudging the court and as a way of exerting pressure on the court to so, sort of so stay Stephen, in line. Is, perhaps it, it, is the problem the increasing uh, ideological split within Congress and perhaps the the undermining of the legitimacy, the unchecked, unaccountable nature of Congress, rather the Supreme Court. Is that the real problem here, do you think? I think that's the source of the problem. I mean, you could still have a court that took steps without Congress to try to remedy the gap, to try to resolve these deficiencies. But yes, I do think, Andrew, that the polarization of Congress has led to a pattern where Congress is less interested in exerting institutional authority over the judiciary, over the executive branch, than it is in, ex in exerting partisan authority. So what political scientists call the separation of parties rather than the separation of powers. And I think what we're seeing now in the context of the Supreme Court is what we've already seen for decades in the context of executive power, which is this dynamic in Congress opens the door for the accumulation of power, the arrogation of power by the institution that's, Andrew, not necessarily related to the party of the president currently in power, but rather is about the nature of institutions to claim power when they can. And that's why I really hope folks take the book not as an indictment of the current conservative majority, even though they obviously figure prominently in the story, but rather as sort of showing the current behavior of the court as a symptom of a broader disease, one that is not historically part of our narrative, um, and one that I think is reflecting not just in all of these unsigned, unexplained orders, but in the justices' behavior in other contexts as well. Yeah, and we, I do want to get, I mean, we, we, we still haven't even addressed the, the central question in your book or the central issue, the shadow docket, what it is and why it's so important. But before we get to that, would it also be fair, and again, I don't want to, it, it's always too easy and, and, and boring to blame everything on conservatives, but did the right get it right or in terms of power in the sense that they seem to have honed in on the supreme court more than the left and my reading of it is is it because it understood that was the shall we say the soft underbelly of the republic or is it because the court controls the issues which conservatives seem to be obsessed with guns and abortion in particular I suspect it's probably some combination of both um, and that you'd actually get different responses from different folks who were part of that process. But I think it's also that there was at least, Andrew, in my lifetime, um, a closer alignment between a particular ideological view of the role of the court, of, you know, sort of the nature of the Constitution on the right than I think we've seen on the left. I mean, I think there's a much more pluralistic understanding of constitutional rights and the role of the courts on the left. And that's, I think, part of why it has been harder for progressives, for Democrats to prioritize the court as an institution. I think, though, it's, it's also worth stressing that even um, within that structure, we had plenty of Republican Supreme Court nominees who I think were not fully with the program. I mean, look at someone like Justice David Souter um, or Justice John Paul Stevens or even Justice Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor. Right. These were all moderate, if not liberal-ish um, Republican appointees. And so I think there's also been a real effort at the top of the Republican power structure to push nominees as far to the right as can get through the Senate 
to a degree that we have not seen from Democrats. Just, Andrew, one quick reminder about, I think, the most powerful example. You know, Samuel Alito was not the first nominee um, to replace Justice O'Connor. He was the third. Um, The first was John Roberts, who then got bumped over to the center chair when Rehnquist died. But the second was Harriet Myers. And the reason why the Harriet Myers nomination failed was because of pushback from the right, which was convinced that she wasn't conservative enough, that she wouldn't push the law enough. And so I think a big part of how we got there is that kind of difference in philosophy. Um, That still doesn't explain, I think, how we get to the court today being quite so unaccountable. I think what it does, though, is it illustrates why once you have an unaccountable court, you see the kinds of behavior we've seen in the last couple of years. Although, again, this is just the view from the peanut gallery. But when these people show up, you know, they're always appointed as right wing ideologues and you get the liberal press, the New York Times and the Guardian warning us that this is the end of the republic. And then they show up and whether it's a, a Roberts or a Kavanaugh, It seems as if the Supreme Court, quote unquote, civilizes them, shifts them towards the center. This process still works, particularly in the context of Roberts, doesn't it, Stephen? To a point, Andrew, I mean, again, I think everyone's different. Um, It certainly hasn't been the case for Justice Alito or for Justice Thomas or for Justice Gorsuch. Um, I mean, I think, yes, the, the job changes the people who hold the job. But this to me is one of the real shifts. And the book actually tries to document the shift in the context of the court's behavior over the last five or six terms, yes, I think Chief Justice Roberts has acted in ways that we might describe as more institutionalist than as fulfilling his you know, ideological beliefs, especially once he became the median vote when Justice Kennedy retired in 2018, and once he's no longer the median vote when Justice Barrett is confirmed in 2020, you know, we see similar sort of patterns. We don't see similar institutionalist behavior, at least on the same scale, from Barrett or from Kavanaugh. And so I think, Andrew, one of the things I'm looking at this term, with all these big cases coming from the court in the next six to seven weeks, is where are we going to see daylight between Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, who I think we can now safely say are the right flank of the majority, um, and Barrett and Kavanaugh, who I think it's increasingly clear are the decisive median votes in right, and they the break down, I'm guessing, in different ways. I mean, Kavanaugh seems to be more of a classic free market Republican, whereas uh, Barrett obviously is very much focused on conservative issues when it comes to religion. I'm not sure where she she stands or sits on the on the on the economy. Anyway, let's get to the core of your argument. What exactly? I, I have to admit, and this reflects my own ignorance about. Uh, legal matters, even though I'm married, I've been actually married twice to lawyers. Um, what exactly is the Supreme Court shadow docket? Um, gets written about, but I think your book is one of the first to specifically address it in the context of the Supreme Court. Sure. I mean, so the, the term is nothing more than an umbrella term. Um, it was coined by a University of Chicago law professor in 2015, Will Bode. And Andrew, he meant it just as a descriptive. Um, that is basically everything the Supreme Court does other than the big fancy merits decisions that we get each spring. And so what kinds of things are we talking about? So the vast majority of orders the Supreme Court issues are orders granting or denying what we call certiorari, deciding which cases to take up, um, which appeals to resolve. The Supreme Court has just about plenary control over which cases it's going to hear. 
But the other piece of it, not that big numerically, but huge in impact, is what we call the emergency side of the docket. And Andrew, that's where, as a case is working its way to the Supreme Court, something that can take several years, a party comes up quickly and says, hey, while this litigation is unfolding, we want you to either put this lower court ruling on hold, or we want you to unfreeze this lower court ruling so that we can keep doing, or we can stop the other party from doing, the thing that we're suing about. What this means, right, is that an emergency order, a stay, could allow the executive branch to carry out a policy that lower courts have said is unlawful, could block a government, say a state government, from carrying out laws that have uh, lower courts have refused to block. And Andrew, what we've seen in the last few years is this is happening all the time on everything from uh, the Title 42 immigration program, Mifepristone, the abortion ban in Texas. So give us so, so give us the worst case, Stephen, that you found in your book and in your studies of of how the Supreme Court is using the shadow docket to influence policy uh, in ways that we're not even aware of. What, what what is the worst case? The one that should really chill anyone who cares about the future of the republic. I mean, I think the from the from the future of the Republic perspective, I really think the redistricting cases are pretty terrible. Um, so just to take the Alabama case, a case called Merrill versus Milligan from February of 2022. So this was Alabama redrawing its U.S. House district maps. It has seven districts um, after the after the census. And Alabama came up with a map um, that only had one so-called majority minority district even though somewhere north of 28% of Alabamians are black, um, even though they live in a particularly concentrated area that usually means under federal law, they have to be represented proportionally in any congressional allocation. So, Andrew, this led two different lower courts staffed by Republican-appointed judges to strike down Alabama's maps and to say, hey, Alabama, you've got to go back to the drawing board. You actually have to draw your congressional maps in a way that complies with federal law. You can't disenfranchise this large minority population. The Supreme Court blocked those rulings in an order that had no analysis, in an order that had no explanation, but an order that meant that Alabama could use the maps that lower courts had blocked as the basis for the primary and general congressional elections in 2022. So, and in your view, this is political because it benefits the Democrats, at least if the law goes through. Is that your analysis? So I think it's hard, Andrew, to look at any one case and say this one's political. The problem and the reason why I think the book was helpful to sort of build the data set is when you look at the broader pattern, what you see is the Supreme Court intervening regularly in cases like Alabama, where the intervention has the tendency to favor Republicans and hurt Democrats, and then not intervening in cases where the partisan valence is flipped, but the legal arguments are the same. So, so is this new, this shadow docket, in terms of its use, or has it always been the case? It, the shadow docket has always been there. I mean, as long as the Supreme Court has existed, it's had to have a mechanism for dealing with these kinds of emergencies. What's new is sort of a, there, there are two steps to the newness. And if you'll, if you'll forgive me, let, me, let me try to unpack the answer. Um, the court really started changing how it handled these kinds of emergency applications in the early 1980s in response to a flood of death penalty cases um, after the court had reinstituted the death penalty in 1976. So at least some of the behavior that I think is problematic, unsigned, unexplained decisions, 
no real chance for participation by the parties, no explanation, even when you're changing the status quo. We see that in the early 1980s death cases. But that used to be confined to the death cases. You ask anyone who clerked on the Supreme Court in the 80s, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, all they, all they remember of the shadow docket is the death docket. What has changed in the last seven or eight years is now the court is taking the same approach to disputes that are not just about whether a state can execute a specific inmate, but are about whether a president can carry out a nationwide policy or whether a state can you know, enforce a law that violates a federal constitutional right. But are these long-term, I, I mean, some of the examples you use in the book are blocking the Biden COVID regulation on impact on churches and how many people can meet in churches during COVID. These all seem relatively marginal. So they seem footnotes. They don't seem to be essential. I mean, it is... Is what you're suggesting in the shadow docket that the, the the Supreme Court can be managing the legal affairs of the United States in a way that nobody even knows what's happening in a totally unaccountable way? Or is this just a, a, a series of examples which are worrying, but don't get to the very core of what the Supreme Court does? Well, I mean, I think that that requires us to define what is the core of what the Supreme Court does. Well, then it's and, like then it's like you know Clinton's thing. What is sex? No, I mean, but you, I mean, you, you know what it is. You teach it. I mean, how but, worried should we be? We're reliant on experts like you. But every time people come out with these books about how terrifying the Supreme Court is, it you you yourself are responsible for at least revealing how dangerous this is otherwise after a while when legal analysts cry wolf people won't take this very seriously i i, I take the point and it's a valid criticism I, I guess all i would say in response is i actually think that there are ways in which what's happening on the shadow docket is worse than the merits docket that a lot of the public discussion and critique of the merits docket is just because we don't like what the court is doing. Um, we, we didn't want the court to overrule Roe. We don't buy. Right. I mean, that's the the sort of the arguments of people like your friend Dahlia Lithwick in Lady Justice. And, you know, the court is right wing because the country is right wing. I mean, that's the nature of things. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I would dispute that the court and the country are quite so aligned politically given recent election results. But, but that aside, again, I think what makes the Supreme Court a, an important and a principled and a legitimate force in our constitutional system. This is not my accounting. By the justice's own accounting is its ability to provide principled justifications for its decision-making. That's what separates the court from simply being politicians in robes. Andrew, we might not agree with the justice's principles, but we will presumably agree that they are principles. And the problem that happens on the shadow docket, when you see more and more of these rulings, when you aggregate them across multiple years, of data and of Supreme Court interventions is that the court is doing all of this with no explanation in context in which the only available neutral principles don't actually line and up. And they do. I mean, I, I, I think America idealizes law. I think Supreme Court justice have always been politicians in robes. Doesn't matter when under FDR or back in the 19th century, the example you gave. Are, are there, in your sense, you've looked at this with a great deal of care are there people on the Supreme Court or at least the, the, the strategists involved with Supreme Court decision on, on the inside 
do they recognize this soft underbelly? And are they using it as an example to get through stuff that they want to get through? Uh, is, 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 is that how this is working? I think there are cases where that's been how this is working. So just to take one example, in the context of challenges to COVID restrictions in blue states like California and New York in 2021, um, we saw the court regularly reaching out to block restrictions through unsigned, unexplained orders when they had before them at the same time cases asking them to take up the merits of those same restrictions through their ordinary plenary review process. And so I think that the critique that there's at least some willfulness in using the shadow docket as opposed to the merits docket, using a ruling where you don't have to provide a rationale as opposed to one in which you do, find some purchase um, in how the court behaved at least in 2021 in the context of COVID cases. But, but if I could step back for a second, more fundamentally, I don't think you have to believe, as I know many do, that this is some part of some devious plot by the justices to believe that it's problematic. I think you could believe, and I, I, I do believe, that for most of the justices, they're just taking these cases as they find them, um, that they're doing what they think of as, as their best. I just think that what we're seeing is how uh, sort of the accretion of problematic behavior and the repetition of it in a larger set of cases really calls into question some of our fundamental assumptions about the source of the Supreme Court's moral authority um, in ways that I think the court could restore. I mean, I, I, I don't think that we're past the point of no return. Yeah, but, we're, we're no, I don't think we're even close to the, to, 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 to the, but, point but of I no think, but, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I just, but, but this is, I mean, Andrew, but this is the conversation I think we ought to be having, which is not why is this specific ruling by the court bad, but rather how is the court's behavior as an institution problematic in ways that we should all have common cause, um, no matter what bottom lines the justices are reaching in putting the court on firmer institutional footing. In the age of Twitter, you're on Twitter, you have a podcast, you have a newsletter, so you're very familiar with the, uh, our, our social media age in which everyone gets to broadcast everything they think, whether they know what they're talking about or not. Do you think that there is a, a structural problem with the court that was, uh, was imagined in a, in a very different time when we established the authority of men and women who have spent their lives dedicated to studying the law, which suggests they know more than certainly I do and even you do. Is there a, a problem with the Supreme Court, a, a structural problem in the 21st century in our social media, increasingly democratized age, or at least in an age in which we fetishize the idea of democracy? I, I think there is a problem. I don't think it's related to the age we're in. Um, I think the structural problem is one that's been baked in from the founding and where a series of fortuitous developments hid it from view. Um, and the structural problem is that the court has to be at once both independent and accountable. Um, and that's a really difficult, tricky line to walk. And walking it requires a real sort of mutual investment from the court and from the political branches. And so the structural problem is basically sort of the inversion of what Madison wrote in Federalist 51. He says, you know, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The idea that the branches exerting power against each other 
would be the best way to keep the checks and balances functioning in a way that's healthy. Well, the court is very happy to be ambitious. The executive, as we've seen across both parties, very happy to be ambitious. What the ambition we're missing, the structural problem with the contemporary court is a lack of ambition from Congress in actually asserting itself. So as the problem so it comes back to what we were saying earlier. The problem isn't really with the court, it's with Congress. And do you think that Americans just need to be more honest about this idea that the, the court is entirely independent and objective? These are politicians in robes, for better or worse. That's just the nature of life, the nature of the law. The law is political. It's not objective. So, so why not just be honest and acknowledge that the Supreme Court is made up of nine politicians in robes? And you may agree with some of their politics and, and, and disagree with others, but that's just the nature of things. So I guess I, I would distinguish, and perhaps I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into trouble here, but I would distinguish between... Well, I hope you get into trouble, Stephen. That's why you've come on this show. Um, I, I, it's, it's too much fun. Um, so I would distinguish between politicians in robes and partisans in robes. Um, no one okay. who, no one who carefully studies the Supreme Court's history could dispute that the court has always been political. I mean, if you look at even the foundational early decisions by John Marshall, those were inherently political decisions um, where the politics were not the partisan politics of the day, but rather the institutional politics of the early republic. And so I think. There's nothing wrong with us all being very clear about the high politics of the separation of powers and about the extent to which the Supreme Court is a critical player in those high politics without devolving into the low politics of contemporary partisan debates. The justices are not supposed to be and never have been simply a font for the further exercise of partisan political power. And it's that distinction, Andrew, which is tough to split um, that we're in trouble with today. Uh, keep in mind, until 2010, we had never had a moment in the entire history of the country where the party of the president who had appointed the justices mapped perfectly onto the ideological division of the court, um, right? There used to be liberal Republicans on the court, conservative Democrats on the court. Um, and what has really, I think, exacerbated the crisis that I think we're in um, is that today there's no crossover. Um, there are four. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I don't think there is. A, I mean, my take is there is. There, everyone's always talks about crises. Let's end. I mean, you believe there's a crisis, the shadow docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic. And that's a subtitle which suggests a crisis. How do we fix it, Stephen? I assume that that the that fixing this this issue of the shadow docket shouldn't be that hard. I mean, it, all, all it is is either writing a new law or institutionalizing current laws? So, I mean, I think that would help. But I, I honestly, actually, a big part of why I wrote the book is because I think part of how we fix the shadow docket is just by talking about it. Um, this is yeah. a context where once there was increased public attention and scrutiny of the court's behavior, we actually saw some marginal shifts in how the court behaved and in how some of the justices are voting in some of these cases. So even having this conversation, I think, is part of the solution. The broader solution. But I hope all the uh, I hope all the justices are watching, Stephen. They don't work very hard, do they? Uh, they work. You know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not here. No, to say I'm joking. I know they work very um, hard, but they have but, teams, and they should be. What they certainly, I'm sure, they're familiar with your work in this new book. So it's an important issue. But and this, I think, is maybe a great place to tie this all back together. Which is, you know, 
I don't expect folks to agree with the sharpest charges that the book levels. I don't expect folks to agree with me about when the court is getting things right, when it's getting it wrong. But I do think that we, and I mean all of us, can talk about the court as an institution in a way that takes far more account of everything the court does and not just the merits decisions that the justices are carefully you know, calibrating themselves and curating themselves. And that once we are paying attention to the court as an institution, I think we will find some things that can be fixed that don't require being on team Democrat or team Republican. And I think those things are pretty low hanging fruit. The book talks about them, but just accepting that that's a conversation we ought to be having is to me a really, really important, should be low hanging fruit that no one has picked yet.